ready to get going. Um, the organizers are giving the nod. So, um, welcome back everybody to um, this plenary session on constructing and reading neuroimages. Um, unfortunately, one of the speakers, um, Gemma Calvert from Neurosense, can't be with us. Uh, she just tells us that uh, she's uh, got stuck uh, on the journey here. So, that's bad news. Good news is that means there's more time to hear from two great speakers uh, and to have a bit more of a discussion at the end. So, um, I think without further ado, uh, we'll, we'll get going. This is uh, Kelly Joyce. We'll talk about producing and interpreting neuroimages in the clinic. So, hello, thank you for inviting me to participate, uh, conference organizers, and uh, thanks to all of you for coming out. <coughs> It's really a pleasure for me to be here. I'm from the United States normally, so I was one of the many on the flights coming in. So I'm a sociologist of science by training and technology, and I'm currently on leave from my position at the College of William and Mary, and I'm a visiting scientist program director at the National Science Foundation. <coughs> And in my research, I've spent the last 10 years or so uh, researching magnetic resonance imaging technology. And uh, I've published these, this research in different peer-reviewed articles and a book called Magnetic Appeal. There's a little pun there for, for those of you who are into puns. And um, I have a website. You can see it up here, wmpeople.wm.edu slash kajoyce. That has uh, my publications linked to it and everything like that. So there are various imaging technologies that can be used to visualize and produce the brain. And we've heard some about those in the uh, intro today. <coughs> and these are quite potent objects that help produce neurosciences more generally. In my talk today, I'm going to concentrate on magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI. I'm also going to focus on what's happening in the United States. And um, thus, the context I discuss are going to probably be quite different than what's happening in the UK and in other countries. So let's keep that in mind as I take you through the Disneyland that is America. Um, MRI scans are used in a variety of settings, and they help produce the neurological self and the neurosciences more generally. In the US, there was a push throughout the 1990s, which you guys might, have know, might know is called the Decade of the Brain by both the government and the National Institutes of Health. Um, so there was this push throughout the 1990s and into the present to extend MRI scans into new arenas, especially um, what have been considered psychiatric or mental health um, disease categories. So this is an example of this ongoing research. This is a flyer that was posted in Washington, D.C. just this past month. And it's from Georgetown University, which is a university in D.C. And it says, kids and teens want a picture of your brain. And inside, it tells them what's involved and how they can participate in this study. And this is from the Georgetown University Laboratory on Social and Effective Neuroscience. So this flyer evokes the attempt that is happening in the US and other places to move MRI into new arenas. Thus far, this research has received a lot of media attention, but has not translated into clinical practice. It's not a clinical diagnostic category. Um, and although this is very interesting research, this expansion into these areas of cognitive and mental uh, health and emotional is not what I have researched. What I really focused on is clinical medicine and the use of MRI uh, scans, how they're produced, interpreted, and used in actual clinical practice. So even though this is fascinating, it's not really what's happening in the clinic, and I'm going to turn my eye to that. 
And, and why that's important to acknowledge is because the science and technology scholars and sociologists of science have shown is that context matters. Um, there is no one meaning or use of medical imaging scans. Where they're being used, how they're being used, shapes the meanings and the uses that are attached to them. So we'll keep this in mind as we go through, but there might be ways to uh, generate questions from the things I present to other arenas, especially like thinking about marketing. Okay, so before we get into that, I want to give you a sense for the complexity of MRI. This is repetitive for some people, I apologize. Um, but this is a PBS graphic that illustrates how MRI works. So PBS is the public broadcasting service in the U.S. It's considered more educational. Some find it boring. But it has more of that reputation or that brand. And not only will it give us sort of an insight into how MRI works, but it's also a cultural text, and it becomes an example of the way these imaging scans are talked about in the U.S. This is an unusual clip um, because it actually will get into some of the, the technical about what's happening usually. Um, popular narratives about MRI scans just talk about it as if they're equivalent to the body and a transparent window into it. This one shows how complex this technology is, but at the same time makes some of the other moves that popular uh, narratives often do. So just to show you what's happening here, this is a graphic of the MRI scanner with the patient going in. That's what the machine typically looks like. There's also something called an open MRI, which looks different. But this is supposed to be your hydrogen atoms whirling around your body. And so what the MRI machine is used to do is to measure the energetic activity of your hydrogen atoms. And then over here is uh, the arrows are supposed to be the radio frequency waves that are beamed at your hydrogen atoms. They, uh, the hydrogen atoms, I'm not, I'm not going to quite use the right scientific language here, but they just, they become, um, they take in that energy and that's that hydrogen right there, energized, it's gone to the next energetic state. And what the MRI machine is used to do is measure how um, long it takes those atoms to release that energy back. So it's quite a complicated technology. It's not a, a straightforward, easy thing in any way at all. All right, let's see how this goes. So this is, again, just think of it as a cultural text, but we can also use it against the grain for other reasons. So this is the um, PBS definition of how MRI works. And you can see here, this is the first scene. It's a tour of an MRI machine. And the text says, the MRI machine's magnetic field, which runs straight down the tube of the machine along the line of the patient's body, actually realigns the body's hydrogen atoms, or in this case, the atoms in the head they're making a brain scan. Normally, the nuclei of the body, body's atoms spin on axes aligned in all different directions. But the MRI's powerful magnet realigns the protons of the body's hydrogen atoms so that they all spin along the same axis along the line down the length of the person's body. So there's your hydrogen atoms spinning, spinning, spinning. So then next what happens is, um, Okay, so let's keep reading. So now the protons of the hydrogen atoms are either facing up or down, toward the head or toward the feet. For the most part, the directions of these atoms almost entirely cancel each other out. The ones facing one direction cancel out those that are facing the other, but there are a few that are not canceled out. And so this will become important in terms of which of the hydrogen atoms in your body get sampled to be included in the final image. So here's the next stage, and this is when um, the radio pulse 
is sent into the area of the body being uh, scanned, and it excites the hydrogen atom. So here you can see who gets the agency. It's the MRI machine. The MRI machine next sends a radio pulse at the area of the body being scanned. The radio pulse makes some of the uncanceled atoms spin at a particular frequency in a particular direction, depending on the type of tissue they make up. When the radio pulse shuts off, the atoms return to their natural alignment and release energy, giving off a signal that the MRI picks up. A computer processes the signals and produces an image of the different types of tissue. And then, voila! <laughs> there we go. We've got the image, the final result. And I should just say as a caveat, um, MRI scans do not, an exam does not produce one image, it produces many. It's a whole series of images. So it's not an x-ray model at all in terms of how they're reproducing and producing the brain and the body. So what's interesting about this part is in the third, the second to last paragraph uh, sentence here, we finally see a human being, other than the patient mentioned in the beginning, show up. Um, and it notes, second to last sentence here, this allows the MRI technician to pick exactly what area of the person's brain he or she wants an image of. Okay, so what's interesting about this is, like I said, unlike other cultural narratives, it actually does talk about how, how complex this is. They're sampling just a very small uh, portion of our hydrogen atoms, which are then translated into a series of pictures. It is not all of our hydrogen atoms. It is not, you know, there's a lot of moments of translation going on. So PBS is interesting in making that part visible, but they do some other moves that are very typical in the American media, at least, when it comes to discussing these imaging scans, which it erases all the human, all the social production, the context, the human activities that then impact the content of the exam. Um, so when you think about that text, that's partly why it's even though it's a little long and boring, I read it to you, so you could see in, in that text who's the actor. It's not humans at all. It's not the patient's body. It's not the, they don't, they're not called technicians, that's wrong. They're called technologists. Um, it's not the technologist. It is actually the MRI machine running around, a superhero doing its action, making these images happen. And so um, what I want to do uh, for most of my talk is to talk about the social production of MRI scans and to focus on the social context and actors that help create these images um, and again, you'll see that this is very U.S. specific, but hopefully I'm giving enough information so we can think about parallels in other countries. So when we look at the social production of MRI scans, what this helps us do, and it's a very STS kind of move, is to look at the many levels of translation that occur between a patient's body and then the final output of a written report, which is what will be generated. People very seldom see the actual images. So the patient seldom sees them, the referring clinician seldom sees them. So that's kind of one of the mythos of, uh, of MRI scans or imaging in general, is that we all somehow are seeing them directly in our own patient care, and that's not typically true. It can happen, but it's not common. So we're going to follow the MRI scans from production, uh, from the actual ordering of them to the production of the scans, and then into the radiologist's reading room to where they interpret them. They translate those images into a written report, and then off it goes, usually just the written report, sometimes the images also, back to the referring clinician. And we'll see how um, there is no way really to separate the social and the technical, nor should we necessarily want to do that. Okay, so to do this research, I am a social scientist. Here are my methods so that you can think about where I'm getting my data. I did field work at three MRI units in the Northeast. I also did field work at five MRI-related conferences. And I did interviews with technologists and physicians affiliated with the research sites. Most of the referring physicians that I talked to were neurologists. <coughs> 
Okay, so in the U.S. it's quite different, I think, than a lot of countries. It's pretty much this, it's a particular approach to healthcare, <laughs> shall we say. Um, and basically the idea is that the more people that can participate in ordering these scans, the better, because then you can sell more of them, right? So in the U.S. we do not really have too many restrictions on who can order them. The U.S. is a very uh, patchwork kind of uh, situation as well, whereas we have federal levels of regulation, but then each state is able to enact their own. So studying healthcare in the United States, you really have to pay attention to those two different levels. Um, in the U.S., federally, you know, most medical doctors and doctors of osteopathy are allowed to order MRI scans, so are chiropractors. Nurse practitioners and physician assistants are usually allowed, it varies state by state. And then in some states in the U.S., California and New Mexico, they now recognize certified Chinese medical practitioners as primary care doctors, and they can also order them. So you have all these people that are potentially sending a patient through the pipeline to get uh, a neuroscan. And um, when, once they do that, where they might send them, there's two options. One is a hospital, an MRI unit in a hospital, and the other is a freestanding clinic. So um, people can own their own MRI units, and you could be getting patients referred and keeping the capital from that in your, as part of your income. Uh, before I go any further, I do want to just say, because we always have to say these things, that I do think MRI is a valuable diagnostic technique. I'm not saying we should go back to some moment before MRI. That's not my take at all. Um, but, you know, social scientists seldom accept that the only re reason we use the technology is because its use contributes to diagnostic accuracy, and we also are well aware that technology doesn't exist outside of society or social relationships, and vice versa. Okay, so this is back to the title photo. This is an MRI, this is a typical MRI suite, and um, this computer area is where the technologist would sit. So a technologist in the U.S. is someone who has received a two-year uh, professional training after high school. They have to be certified typically, not necessarily in MRI, but in imaging technology more broadly. And um, they are the ones who are going to interact with the patient. The radiologist, the other physicians aren't necessarily going to see the patient. So the, the, in the U.S. they tend to work in teams of two. One technologist will help guide the patient onto that stretcher and then into the hole, which is called a bore. And this can be quite difficult, especially if you're terminally ill, right? If you've had a stroke or if you have a, a terminal brain cancer, this stuff is not, there's a lot of body work and emotional work involved in this job. And another technologist sits out here at the computer, and they make lots of decisions about what to include in the series of scans that are going to take place. So they're deciding things like, their, their words would be things like field of view, um, slice thickness, resolution, all these things, just like filmmakers, right? They're deciding how much of the body to include in these pictures. But unlike filmmakers, they're actually sampling. They're deciding how, many of the, how much of the hydrogen atoms in particular parts of the body should be sampled. Um, and these decisions all have um, effects on the content. So for exa example, slice thickness. So what will happen in an MRI exam, Again, it's not at all like x-ray. So they're going to say they're doing my brain. They're going to do slices going down. And that, again, is their language. They call it slices, which is interesting because it really reinforces the idea that this is the real. This is equivalent to the body. It's a slice of the body. It's real. So what they'll do is they go through and they do slices. And when I say slices, what they're doing is they're measuring the activity of the hydrogen atom in those slices. And because of the way the technology works, they have to put spaces in between those slices. Otherwise, they get distortion. So. When they're trying to think about slice thickness and some of these other decisions that they're making, it's often 
a trade-off against time. So the smaller the slice thickness, the longer the, the final exam. And so that trade-off is a trade-off between the amount of anatomical detail and resolution and the amount of time that the person is in the scanner. And what happens is the technologist will sit there at the computer screen, plug in some choices for these decisions about the content of the exam, the slice thickness, the uh, field of view, and then the computer will pop up the time, how long that exam will take. So if they put in their ideal choices, and the exam is going to take two hours, that's not going to happen. And they keep putting in figures until they get it down to whatever their institution has told them is the appropriate length of time for an exam. That could be 20 minutes, it could be 45 minutes, it really depends on the institution and the type of exams that they're running. And this was fascinating for me uh, to watch as an ethnographer because they would do these things, but they wouldn't talk about them. It was very much part of their tacit knowledge. So they would be manipulating, making these decisions, and it, as an ethnographer, I had to start asking, what are, you do you know, what are you doing there? Like, why did you just do that? What is that doing to the content? But if I had just done interviews, none of that would have come out because it is so much of their embodied practice and worthless. So um, again, once I started to question the technologists about this, they started to speak uh, about their understanding of MRI scans and what their work did to the content. So here's one technologist. He said, it's easy to tweak the parameters. Parameters is the name of those choices that I was talking about earlier. To make something that's not there. You can also hide lesions. If you knew where a lesion was and you pointed it out to me, I could make it so that the lesion can be in the gap. And you could go through the liver or the brain and you would never see it. Another technologist said, oh yeah, MRI scans are all smoke and mirror. Smoke and mirrors, because we can make things appear or disappear depending on the choices on content. So to point this out is not to say that MRI exams are not useful, that they are not related to our bodies, but it's not the one-to-one equivalency that is often presented um, in policy discussions as well as media and marketing and other arenas. Okay, so that's one line level of uh, one layer of translation. So the second layer of translation is going to occur in the reading room, which is the name, at least in the U.S., that we give to the radiology room. And this room in hospitals is away from the production site, away from the MRI suite. It's not terribly far away, but it's separate. Uh, other countries have organized their radiology units differently. And so the radiologist, this is using uh, printed film. It's moved to a more electronic internet uh, system now, but this is what it looked like printed film. And they sit there and they look at these images very much in a factory kind of process sort of way. And they do a lot of cognitive work translating the scanned content in a written report. So they sit in front of these screens and they dictate a verbal interpretation of the image's content. Remember, they're not looking at one. For my patient exam, they're going to be looking at many, many of these pictures. And then, they trans then that's transcribed into a written report. And that's a whole different level of translation where most of the uh, translation into a written report happens off-site, and that's another person who can edit and tweak the content. Um, so radiologists are medical doctors or doctors of osteopathy in the U.S. who have specialized in image interpretation through residencies and the like. Um, in the U.S., legally, any MD or DO can interpret, but it tends to be radiologists. So this is another moment where we, if we sort of observe their work practices and think about it, talk about it with them, where you can see the translation occurring. Radiologists have uh, developed a lot of language that calls attention to the fact that the image is in relation to the body, but it's not equivalent to the body. Here's some of their language. Um, they talk about artifacts. And artifacts are 
things that occur in the image that are distortions. So like remember when I was talking about slice thickness, when they're too close together, you can get these little white spots that show up on the pictures, and they're called crosstalk. Well, the issue is crosstalk sometimes looks like multiple sclerosis. So they have to do a lot of work trying to identify, is that crosstalk or is that multiple sclerosis? And they go back and forth. But this is some of their language. Again, you don't often hear this language showing up in popular accounts about MRI scans. Another language that the radiologist I observed and interviewed was old friends. So, and I think this goes back to uh, Stephen's question about the brightness and the, your, your brain lights up. MRI scans are typically black and white, and you can see the light here, and they will talk about the bright spots, and the bright spots can be pathology, or it might be an old friend, i.e. something that is normal for you. And the radiologist has to do a lot of work trying to figure out, is this bright spot, this light, pathology in you, or is it an old friend? And when they're following someone over time, they'll start to use that language of old friends. That's just normal for her. Um, unidentified bright objects, it might be disconcerting for you, but the radiologists talk about UVOs in your brains. And UVOs are, again, these bright objects that are part of your anatomy, at least the way your anatomy shows up in an MRI scan. It does not mean pathology. I don't think they're going to include these in your reports. <laughs> this is how they're talking about them, at least to themselves and to their colleagues. And then finally, they uh, talk about overinterpretation and underdiagnosis. So, overinterpretation is when uh, describes situations in which the radiologist interprets the anatomy of the image as normal, but other, oh, excuse me, the opposite. The radiologist labels the anatomy of the image as abnormal, but other information produced either through a second interpretation or other kinds of diagnostic texts or surgery or something says that, oh no, that is actually normal for that particular patient. So it's a false positive. Underdiagnosis is the opposite situation. Um, it's when a radiologist interprets the image, set of images as normal, but then actually there was pathology there that that person missed. And again, it's through this correlation, kind of going back and forth between different kinds of data that they figure that out. So um, again, we can see Although these images are presented as equivalent transparent windows into our body, the people who work with them are well aware that they're not, and they have developed language to talk about the differences between our different bodies, right? Our, our brain as an MRI scan versus our brain here and our other brains that wander around the hospitals and the clinics. So um, radiologists are well aware that the ability, the ability to interpret the scans, to translate the pictures into words varies. Um, so one radiologist said, you hope that you can see everything, but that isn't the case. There have been studies that suggest that radiologists may miss 35% of the findings on any given image. And this has been replicated by other clinical studies where even the very best radiologists, you know, maybe their findings correlate with other findings like 80, 85% of the time. Um, other radiologists, again, this was not, this was part of their tacit knowledge. This was knowledge that they had, but they didn't speak about it unless you started watching what they were doing and you could press them about what was happening. Um, so another radiologist told me the story. There was a patient at Blank that was scheduled to have a resection of pineal tumor. It turned out that that was an artifact from a phloboid. The neurosurgeon who scheduled the operation for that same day said, I just want to make sure that we're looking at the same thing here. He put the film up in front of me, and I said, we are looking at a phloboid in the third ventricle. He said, really? That's not a pineal tumor? I said, no, that is not a pineal, pineal tumor. And he said, oh, good thing I showed it to you. And so the surgeon was, uh, this, this surgery was stopped. So this is, again, not to undermine the whole credibility of MRI, but just to say these are not the stories that are often told about these scans. 
in popular culture. House, at least in the United States, I'm sure you guys have House as an example of that. MRIs often uh, fails to reveal the truth about it. It's no longer a revelatory uh, technology on House. It is a routine technology, which is even more lucrative. Every patient is supposed to get an MRI scan. Um, but, but that's still an exception. Okay, so then if we move over to the clinical encounter, we can start to see how this image, this kind of social production happening there. So the referring clinician has to think about the info from the written report. Again, remember, they're probably not going to see the pictures, but they're probably just going to see the written report. And in the U.S., the fear of malpractice has gotten so strong that there is a complaint that the radiologists who've written reports are so vague at this point, it's hard to get anything out of them because they're trying to head off some malpractice issues. Is that empirically true? I doubt it, but that's sort of the rhetoric and the frustration on the part of the referring clinicians. Um, so they take that written report and then they put it in conjunction with other diagnostic material gained from the patient history, physical exam, and other tests. Um, the information gained from a neuroscan or any kind of MRI scan becomes part of the diagnostic workup, but it is not the only component of it. And I think that's interesting to think about when MRI and fMRI move to other arenas, what other information are they correlating it with? Or are they presenting as if it's going to stand alone as the truth about that situation? Um, so again, the, the referring clinicians talked openly about this. They said the MRI scan is probably negative up to 25% of the time in multiple sclerosis cases. So I would usually trust my exam much more than the MRI scan. Say a patient gets an MRI and it shows a lesion that is of no clinical consequence. Now you're left with doing the backtrack, backtracking and saying you're neurologically normal. This bright object in your brain is of no significance. There's no correlation with the headache that you have. You just have a headache. So they really have to work. Um, 25, in this guy's case, 25% of his patients have all the other um, clues of multiple sclerosis, but it's not showing up in the image. You can't then deny them treatment. That wouldn't work. So um, again, it becomes more complicated. The revelatory power of MRI Scans become more complicated when you move over to the clinical encounter. And MRI alone cannot therefore speak for a person's body. Now why does all this matter? You know, okay, so what? Typical story, they're moving around and making these decisions. Well, then you have to look at the, the policy and institutional context. In the US, this is particularly telling, and I, I think, again, very different from what's happening in the UK. So, in the U.S., there are no regulations that mandate MRI parameters such as slice thickness, field of view. There are other countervailing forces like fear of liability, the desire to do a good job. Those are in play. But really, there is a lot of room to work with these parameters and to create your own normal for your MRI unit in terms of what would be a good scan. Now, this, this no regulations would not be a problem, except for that's happening in the U.S. where we, again, have a patchwork system. So we have many payment schemes, but the predominant one is fee-for-service. So for fee-for-service, you get paid for every exam you do. Um, so we have that situation in the U.S., plus we have in the U.S. an increasing emphasis on productivity and revenue. So those three things are creating a situation that um, means units want to do as many exams as possible. And if you remember my earlier point, that means quicker exams less quality exams, right? So there's that trade-off. It's not a... <coughs> so um, that's one of the things that's happening in the U.S. The other thing is most in health insurance policies, remember we don't have one national health <laughs> service. We have many different nonprofit, for-profit companies that provide health insurance in the United States. Typically, they will only reimburse for one interpretation by a radiologist of an imaging study, even though numerous studies show that two bring the accuracy, if we could do that for a second, up significantly. 
Um, the other thing is the formal evaluation of radiologists' interpretation ability in the U.S. is up to the will of ins the institution. Um, there is no requirements that they review their work. Unlike professors who get evaluated all the time by their students, radiologists don't. And so when, it, when, it, when an institution, a hospital, say, decides that they would like to get some feedback on how the radiologists are doing, they take a sample of them and send them out to third parties for review. But that's really up to their own institutional practices. And then finally, um, like I noted earlier, regulations say that any MD or DO can interpret MRI scans. They do not need particular training in MRI interpretation to do it. Again, fear of liability, the desire to do a good job means that these things are not going to happen very often, but they do happen. And in my field work in Massachusetts, people talked about it when they felt like a doctor was interpreting exams that they did not have the expertise to do. So, what's happening in the U.S. is that the institutional context in the policy context, emphasize the production of low-quality MRI exams. Although people in units may resist these pressures, they exist in way upon MRI use. And these contexts and policies do not draw upon technologists or physicians' knowledge about experience with working with MRI scans. So of course, MRI scans are valuable diagnostic tools. But here, and I, I want to expand on um, Elizabeth Gross's work in understanding of edges. I think it's more interesting to see MRI scans as edges that bring together professional decisions and skills, institutional context, policy incentives, and patient bodies. It is not this kind of revelatory truth-telling machine that, at least in the US, we've been led to believe it is. OK, so this is, originally we had 15 minutes. It kept changing as people, the bodies changed in the panel. Um, so, in my book, Magnetic Appeal, I do look more at the pol economic policies and investment strategies that contribute to MRI use, and also uh, the history of the technology. So that's another resource if you're interested in this. And also, uh, Julie Palm Dr. Julie Palmer at the University of Warwick has compiled an extensive bibliography on visualization, medicine, and society. And if you just Google those words, it'll come up, and I've also put the address here. But it's a great resource, and it really will save you a lot of time if you're trying to look at, at, at the literatures on these topics is more medical focus versus marketing or um, there is some stuff on research labs. Okay. Thanks for listening. And I look forward to answering your questions. Okay, sorry. Okay. We may have time to come back to this then. Thank you. So our next speaker, um, Richard Rockistas, is going to be talking.
as I said, from the amygdala to the frontal lobe, which was supposed to be, and I, I quote, uh, dark, scary, wet, and very visceral. The neuroscientists that collaborated aimed at creating the different parts and chambers of the right to be correct in neurological detail and mapping. The sequence shows how filmmakers and neuroscientists have similar visualization techniques at their disposal and collab can collaborate in also in artistic ways. But more importantly, it's an emblematic image, I would say, for the way in which contemporary cinema has quite literally entered our brain states. Increasingly, the images on screen bring us immediately uh, in contact with the mental world. Instead of looking through the eyes of the character, we enter quite literally a character's mental space. And I suggest to call this type of cinema, this type of contemporary cinema, the neural image. The sequence from Fight Club might resemble scientific uh, neuroimaging uh, visualizations, but when I talk about the neural image, I refer actually in a much more broader sense to a new type of contemporary cinema that has emerged in the digital age. <coughs> Some typical examples of this kind of neural images in cinema are, and you might know them all, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where a couple in crisis tries to come to terms um, uh, with their relationship by literally erasing the memories of one another and entering each other's brain space and Inception, a very recent uh, example, where a whole team of dream invaders tries to implant or incept one little thought in somebody's mind that might change a few Sure. Avatar is another case in point of brain power in cinema. Typically, we see people hooked up uh, to, uh, to a kind of brain scanning machine, but also when this is not literally emphasized, contemporary cinema has become a mental cinema, which differs in major ways from previous <coughs> dominant modes of filming. <coughs> More than just the representation of mental images, or the description of simply a new genre, the neuroimage actually has deep philosophical and political implications. The neuroimage, as I'm trying to define and conceptualize it, follows from two earlier cinema forms as they were developed by philosopher Gilles Deleuze. In the 1980s, Deleuze published two books on cinema in which he made a distinction between Cinema One, the movement image, which is more or less the dominant mode of cinema before World War II. Think of classical Hollywood, but not only that, but that's a dominant form. And what he calls Cinema 2, the time image, which is understood as modern cinema after World War II. Think of Italian neorealism, the films of Antonioni, Godard, or Alain René. I suggest that the neuroimage could be considered as a third dominant cinematographic mode that has come into existence after the fall of the Berlin Wall and has intensified after 9-11, a period which corresponds to the rise of the digital from Web 1.0 to Web 2.0 and the growing importance of neuroscience in the same period. Although the neuroimage as a cinematographic mode has developed parallel to develop developments in neuroscience, and although images have become literally mental, it is not with the neuroimage that the brain and the film screen are, are not just with the neuroimage that the brain and the film screen are linked. Um, for Deleuze, there has always been a special relationship between the brain, the screen, and philosophy. 
Cinema, he says, not only puts movement in the image, it also puts movement in the, ma- in the mind and the brain. And cinema, precisely be- because it puts uh, the image in motion, never stops tracing circuits in the brain. Most famously, he declared in an interview about his film books in the 1980s that the brain is the screen. And he was actually calling for a, for a collaboration between film philosophy and neuroscience. I'll just give you one quote from this um, uh, interview. Deleuze says, new connections, new pathways, new synapses. That's what philosophy calls into play as it creates concepts, and cinema when it creates percepts and affects. But, whole, uh, but this whole image is something of which the biology of the brain, in its own way, is discovering an objective material likeness, or the material workings. End of quote. Now, rather than looking at the ways in which the neural image can be uh, assessed insightfully by relating them to principles, some principles of the brain, um, which I try to do in one part of uh, of the the larger project that I'm developing around this, I'd rather first give a brief sketch of the changed relationship between thought and the image, and second, give an example of the aesthetics of a contemporary neural image. So I'll give you, it's a little tour through uh, history, film uh, history, actually, (laughs) and the brain. Cinema and uh, and the brain enter into a circuit that produces new thoughts. In cinema of the movement image, let's say classical uh, cinema, thinking proceeds by ways of tropes, metonymies, metaphors, inversions, oppositions, attractions, and so forth. Deleuze calls this a form of action thought, where there is always a relation between man and the world. Hence, it's organic qualities, always relating a synthetic whole in which everything is associated together. Uh, Classical American cinema operates mainly uh, through metonymical principles of continuity editing, and uh, Russian cinema, for instance, the cinema of Eisenstein, uh, produces shocks to thought, through metaphorical images. For instance, as you can see here, uh, the, the statue of a lies, uh, rising lion combined or juxtaposed to the revolt of the people, which uh, um, you know, brings a new thought to, uh, you know, and, and it uh, actually invites for a revolution. And another way in which classical cinema or the movement image is related to the brain or to mental processes is in its relation to memory and the imagination dreams and fantasies. Here again, the organic composition of the whole determines the place of memory and imagination. Memories are presented out of the necessity of a clearly defined point in the present to which we always return. The classical flashback, for instance, is motivated by events in the present. Movements back and forth in time relate to the organic whole of the present that can be reconstituted and distinguished from the past and the future. On a temporal scale, the movement image is mostly told from the present. Hitchcock's spellbound, from which you see a picture there, most famously shows how dream figures in our unconscious, uh, operate in our unconscious mind. Here, the main character suffers from amnesia and anxiety attacks whenever he sees black stripes on a white surface. The famous dream sequence designed by Dali 
uh, is shown as an oneric flashback and decoded by the psychoanalyst in the film to discover its significance, forming again the composition of the whole that makes sense. In the end, it's all decoded and related uh, and back into you know, the resolution of the, the trauma. So this changes, so this is all uh, a crash you know, view on um, uh, classical cinema's relationship to thought and the brain. Um, there is another, uh, other <laughs> um, more literal relationship to the brain in uh, the classical uh, mode of telling. And um, this is, um, again, here it, it's very often the brain is referred to in the form of tropes or you know, metaphors or allegories. Uh, and in the 50s, there was a whole... Um, branch or, of you know, B-genre horror movies called brain movies, in which we very li often literally saw uh, uh, brains. And this is an example of a find without a, a face, um, a film in which a mad scientist secretly experiments in thought materializations in order to detach consciousness from the body and, and give it then an entity of its own. The experiments that he performs on his own brain are literally boosted when his instruments are struck by lightning, and he strategizes that the atomic plant near his laboratory would be an even more powerful source of energy for his project. Of course, the experiments soon become uncontrollable, and the scientist discovers that he has created an invisible find of expanded intelligence, a mental vampire that feeds on atomic power and the brains and spinal cords of human beings. While the representations of the materialized thoughts as literal disembodied brains is quite over the top, the metaphoric relations or allegorical relations between the unleashed brain and the dangers of nuclear power during the Cold War are still powerful. Again, we see in the movement image how thought, tropes, and the brain are connected in an organic way. So this changes um, with the arrival of the time image, which is more or less after uh, the Second World War. Um, after the Second World War, the organic sensory motor link of the organic whole of man with the world is broken. And in cinema, the time image starts to produce anti-heroes, wanderers, wanderers and seers, who find themselves struck by something intolerable in the world, confronted with something unthinkable unthink in thought. The task of cinema from this point is no longer to produce thought showing the connections to the whole, but instead it produces, and I quote from Deleuze, the psychic situation of the seer who sees better and further than he can react, that is, think, unquote. Thought becomes irrational, and not necessarily organic in the sense that thing, many things remain inexplicable, undecidable, impossible, and incommensurable. In all these types of images, the power of thought is related to a confusing and confused experience of time and to the re reality of the virtual, the virtual of the past mainly, that crystallizes with the actual. Characters get lost in time, caught between the past and the present or the layers of, of time. And Alain René's um, uh, last year in Marienbad um, is, is, is an example of, uh, of such a, a clear example of a film where characters don't know in which layer of, of time they are, they are uh, wandering. 
Another film by René, Je t'aime, je t'aime, presents a main character that is literally transported back in time. Together with a laboratory mouse, he is sent back one year into the past, exactly one year into the past for one minute, uh, to relive that one minute uh, in the past. He is, uh, uh, by the scientists, he is, he is sedated and passively he lays down uh, in a lobe-like giant uh, brain machine waiting to be taken back. But then the memory of this one minute starts to mix up with other snippets of memory and of Im imagination. And he completely disappears out of the, the present. Uh, his body also disappears uh, quite literally in, the, in this film. Um, the poster of the film emphasizes the importance of the past, of the virtual, in the time image. Uh, it says, the past is present and future in Alain René's new time machine. The time machine is the time machine or brain machine of the past. Um, so in the time uh, image, it is basically the past that becomes, and this is, you know, relates back to uh, the philosophies of Bergson, who was very interested in the mind uh, as well, but it's the past that becomes really uh, the most important layer of time from which we connect to the present and uh, the future. We can also see that the brain itself is not just connected to the experiments of a mad scientist, as it was you know, done over the top in the 50s uh, films, um, that, that should be seen as a metaphor uh, for some kind of other danger. But our relationship, these films tell us that our relationship to the brain has changed, no longer connected to the possibilities of a rational and organic whole, um, they, the brain becomes, and this is a quote from Deleuze again, our passion, our disease, and it becomes our exploration of deepest dimensions of experience, of time, and of the universe. And this much more volatile and probabilistic, um, rather than certain conception of the brain, has intensified and is transformed in the, the contemporary neuroimage. The wandering and wandering characters of the time image described by Deleuze seem to have been replaced by the delusional and overwhelmed characters of the neuroimage. In Fight Club, we enter the movie as a ride through the, uh, the brain's neural network, only to find out that at the end of the film, uh, the two protagonists, whom you saw at the end of the, the sequence, are actually one, a character whose virtual and actual sides are both real. Um, the schizophrenic, one could say, characters of the neuroimage whose brains we literally enter become lost in the vertiginous multiplicities and vortices of screens, data, information, and other uh, uh, you know, uh, scre screens of contemporary globalized me media culture. The image of the brain in the neuroimage can be considered from actually two poles. On the one hand, from its deepest and most inner faults, um, so really inside the, the brain, its most subjective point. And on the other hand, from its most external fields of expression, its connections to the cosmos. And these poles seem to be fractally enfolded. And I just want to show you one example uh, of a, um, a film that this, uh, expresses actually the most inner pole of the neuroimage. Pi, a film by Darren Aronofsky, is a very subjective movie. 
its images are entirely composed from the perception uh, of its main character, Max Cohen, who is a mathematician obsessed with finding a universal pattern in numbers. He's especially fascinated by the number pi and with, fi uh, and with finding a way to predict the fluctuations in the stock market. Consequently, he is wanted by both Wall Street companies and a group of Hasidic Jews. And Max suffers from paranoid schizophrenia. And I think I'll just show you the trailer of the film to get a feeling of, uh, of uh, the film. So I have to get out of this again. And okay, pi refers to the brain um, and thought on several levels. First of all, uh, as a subjectively uh, <coughs> schizophrenic film, the image itself is completely mental. We are in Max's head space. Uh, we experience the innermost real reality of his brain screen. And as the director said, uh, acknowledges, we wanted the audience to experience how it was to be uh, a renegade genius mathematician standing on the verge of insanity. <coughs> and the filmmaker uses several <coughs> techniques to express this inner pole of madness. First, all the choices, uh, uh, for, first of all, the choice of the film stock is remarkable. <coughs> Pi is shot in black and white reversal film, uh, which is difficult to develop and has uh, no gray tones, only sharp, contrasted black and white, which gives the image an eerie and expressive quality. Furthermore, the camera angles and movements bring the camera into Max's uh, subjective space by always staying close, in close proximity to him or showing his point of view which is often an hallucinating point of view. And thirdly, there is the soundtrack. Max suffers from severe headaches, and every time the headache kicks in, uh, there is this penetrating sound, which directly also penetrates our brain as, uh, as spectators. So that's the first level, this subjectiveness that is uh, 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 very concretely present in this, uh, this image. Secondly, there are also, again, metaphorical references to the brain. The brain no longer stands for the dangers of nuclear power and mad scientists, as in the movement image, nor is it a ruined city or an empty landscape, as in the time image. The brain is now seen as a complex computer network that can malfunction. In one scene, Max discovers a literal bug in his homemade computer. Conspicuously, the brain Max attacks at the end of the film is... Um, is crawling with the presence of ants. Uh, and the same kind of bug, you know, the these ants are also crawling everywhere in his, uh, in his apartment. And they can be read metaphorically as bugs in his mind or, or a, a bug in a computer. Uh, uh, so that level is, is possible. It's still uh, possible to read, um, you know, uh, on a metaphorical level or relationship to the brain. However, uh, Aronofsky is, explains his motivation for including this theme also in a less metaphorical way, which indicates another relation to thought. When on a holiday in Mexico, the director visited a small unknown Maya temple and discovered that it was literally uh, uh, covered with uh, ants. And he suddenly envisioned that humans, and he was referring now to the importance of the civilization of the Mayans, and ants were actually all the same. He saw, in a way, the groundlessness of the I, which is also a groundlessness Max discovers the closer he comes to the, uh, to the mystery, mysteries of the universe. So now the ant is no longer a metaphor or a bug in the system, but a real, 
rhizomatic, to use a term of Deleuze, connection between different forms of life without, who all have a, an, an undetermined I, at least at a sort of basic uh, uh, level. And this is something that the neuroimage is addressing on a, a profound way. And third, the most striking, uh, most striking about Pi's different relationship to the brain uh, is actually the film's visceral, uh, visceral qualities. When Max opens his computer and gets the bug, so an end out, his fingers are sticky with a sort of slimy substance, which Max first looks at, then listens to, smells and tastes. In Pi, then, contrary to many of the brain films in the time image, where the mental landscape is more often expressed in a distant and conceptual way, even if that can be violent or, or passionate, um, the mental spaces in, and the brains in the neural image are very physical and sensuous. Thought is quite literally now embodied, and it's emphasized in many other films uh, as well. Um, Finally, Pi demonstrates that thought has become theoretic uh, in, in these films. At several points in the movie, Max voiceover states his assumptions, and they were in the, in the clip as well. One is, mathematics is the language of nature. Two, everything around us can be translated and understood through, na through numbers. Three, if you graph any number of any system, patterns emerge. Merge. Therefore, everything in nature are patterns. So clearly, this is the theorem that the film proposes. The principles of mathematics, because underlying principles of everything, should make it possible to decode and predict the patterns of the stock market, which, according to Max, is a living organism screaming with life. This theorematic nature of contemporary cinema, which is much less organic and much more speculative in a sense that it always proposes a what-if scenario, makes that the neuroimage has the future as its dominant sign of time. So if the movement image was related to the present, the time image uh, to uh, the past, now we enter the future. The future is always speculative, but it is precisely this speculativeness, probable or less probable but never certain, that determines thought in the neuroimage. In Minority Report, another typical neuroimage, Tom Cruise fights crimes based on premonitions and possible <coughs> future crimes. And it's not so difficult to see how, uh, as problematically as this may be, that's precisely what we have to discuss, this idea also governs our politics of preemptiveness. More film philo philosophically, we can say that if the movement, uh, well, as I just said already, the movement image relates to the past and the future from a point in the present, and the time image bases the present and the future from layers of the past with which it coexists, the dominant sign of, the, of time of the neuroimage is the future. It is from a speculation of the future that we relate to the present and the past. In The Fountain, another film of Aronofsky, he explores the layers of time more explicitly, situating the same story in the past, present, and future. And these images are from uh, the, the, the future uh, story. Um, uh, and it's only in the future that all of the past and all of the present can be reconsidered. And finally, that, which is, which is of course, the ultimate future for all of us, can be accepted. 
But the neuro image in contemporary cin cinema seems to tell us that we live in the future, actually, or in any case, we live from a, a perspective of the future. So to summarize um, uh, in conclusion, we can see that the brain, the screen, and philosophy, or thought, have uh, uh, gone through profound changes. Thought is no longer organic, but it's marked by cracks, leaps, and folds that open up to the unthinkable and is increasingly under pressure of an overflow of data, images, and information. Thinking still proceeds in metaphors, but also opens up to other forces that are much more ungrounded. The disembodied eye that gave us the dominant access to the world on, uh, on screen has been replaced by an embodied brain. And in all this, we have shifted the temporal metaphysics of our brains from the present through the past now into the future. It brings with it an, an aesthetics of immersiveness, chaos and complexity and an epistemology based on probabilities instead of certainties, confusion and affect. affect. Um, and as its, extreme poles, as, as its extreme poles, it has madness as the most inner, world, uh, um, re, uh, inner, inner pole of subjective experience, as is exemplified by Pi, and at the other hand, cosmology, the most outer uh, pole. And of course, this is all just uh, a sketch, but um, this is more or less broadly the spectrum along which the neuroimage in contemporary digi digital culture is moving. Thank you.